welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Tuesday, April 23rd, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, Kamala Harris calls for impeachment in a CNN town hall, a bunch of other key moments from the five CNN town hall events last night, Monmouth University releases its latest 2020 preference poll, and Biden delays his announcement. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. In a CNN town hall last night, Kamala Harris became the second member of the 2020 field after Elizabeth Warren to call for Congress to begin impeachment proceedings against President Trump. Responding to a question from an audience member, here's what Harris said, quote, I believe that we need to get rid of this president. That's why I'm running to become president of the United States, so that is part of the premise, obviously, of my point. I think we have very good reason to believe that there is an investigation that has been conducted which has produced evidence that tells us that this president and his administration engaged in obstruction of justice. I believe Congress should take the steps towards impeachment. End quote. The audience began applauding, but Harris continued after a few seconds interrupting them, and this is a long one. Quote, but I also want to say this, because it doesn't end there. I also want to say this. I am also a realist. And when I look at what has been happening in the over two years and some months that I've been in the United States Senate, I have also witnessed folks in the United States Congress, and in particular in the GOP, who have been presented with many reasons to push back against this president. And they have not. And when we look at the impeachment process, there will be what happens in the House, an investigation that takes place. I think we can be pretty sure it looks like that is very likely to happen. And then it's going to go over to the Senate. And in the House, there needs to be a vote by a majority, a simple majority. And then it's going to come over to the Senate. And I have not seen any evidence since I've been in the United States Senate that the United States Senate and the Republicans hold the majority. I've not seen any evidence to suggest that they will weigh on the facts instead of on partisan adherence to being protective of this president. And that's what concerns me and what will be the eventual outcome. So we have to be realistic about what might be the end result, but that doesn't mean the process should not take hold, end quote. Okay, so running tally time. Two major candidates, both sitting senators in favor of impeachment. Both are realistic about its likely failure in the Senate, but saying the House should do it anyway. More on who the third candidate is will come in just a moment. So in that last segment, Harris's quote was part of her town hall event on CNN last night. But she wasn't the only one holding a town hall event on CNN. In fact, there were a total of five candidates running back-to-back in a town hall format. The candidates were Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, and Pete Buttigieg. Now, I don't have time to cover every single thing they said, not by a long shot, but I do want to highlight some key moments. So let's start with Klobuchar. She disagreed with yesterday's proposal from Warren to eliminate most student debt and make college free. If you didn't hear about Warren's program, check Monday's show for a detailed explainer. Anyway, Klobuchar said, quote, I wish I could staple a free college diploma under every one of your chairs. I do. Don't look. It's not there. I wish I could do that. But I have to be straight with you and tell you the truth. End quote. And you know, I kind of do wish that she had put novelty diplomas under all their chairs. But anyway, Klobuchar said that instead of such a gigantic program like the one Warren proposes, 
she would take a more centrist route, expanding Pell Grants in order to help students refinance their loans. Beyond that, Klobuchar came out explicitly against impeachment and emphasized that she has been able to win traditionally Republican districts in Minnesota, meaning she is a centrist and therefore a viable candidate in red and purple states. And then she had a slightly awkward moment that everybody has been talking about. Okay, quote, Every single time I have run, I have won every single congressional district in my state, including Michelle Bachman's, okay? That's when you guys are supposed to cheer, okay? End quote. So this is eerily reminiscent of the 2016 Republican primary when Jeb Bush gave a rousing speech about what kind of president he would be, his thing about being strong but not boastful, and then the crowd didn't do anything, so he said with a smirk, quote, please clap, end quote. Now look, in both cases, the lines did end up getting both applause and laughter, and it is funny, they both had good humor about this, and it does not reflect on the viability of the candidate. But I mention this because you can expect it to become a meme. It sure did for Jeb Bush. So you will see this everywhere. All right, next up was Elizabeth Warren. She talked about her policy proposals, some of which we've covered on this show. And she highlighted yesterday's announcement of her free college tuition and student debt forgiveness program with an emphasis on how she would pay for it by taxing the assets of extremely wealthy people. Reading from New York Magazine here, quote, The Massachusetts senator defended her ambitious education reform, explaining that an ultra-millionaire tax that taxes two cents on every dollar of the great fortunes above $50 million would cover her tuition plan and more. And here's how the money works out, Warren told the crowd. If we put that two-cent wealth tax in place on the 75,000 largest fortunes in this country, two cents, we can do... Universal child care for every baby, zero to five, universal pre K, universal college, and knock back the student loan debt burden for 95% of our students and still have nearly a trillion dollars left over. End quote. The camera cut away to a group of young people applauding and many of them smiling. And next up was Bernie Sanders. Now, Sanders, among other candidates, has been in favor of restoring voting rights to convicted felons. He wants to extend that right even while they are still in prison. This is an issue we have not gotten into on this show until just now. So one student asked Sanders whether he would support allowing the Boston Marathon bomber to vote. She noted that the bomber is a convicted terrorist and murderer. And she further asked whether people convicted of sexual assault should be able to vote. Sanders replied first by thanking her for the question, then talking a bit about his desire to increase voter turnout in general, and then saying, quote, We live in a moment where cowardly Republican governors are trying to suppress the vote. And in fact, right here, as you may know, in New Hampshire, the legislature and the governor are working hard to make it more difficult for young people to vote. And to me, that is an incredibly undemocratic, un-American process. And I say to those people, by the way, if you don't have the guts to participate in free and fair elections, you should get another job and get out of politics, all right? So, to answer your question, as it happens, in my own state of Vermont, from the very first days of our state's history, what our Constitution says is that everybody can vote. That is true. So people in jail can vote. Now, here is my view. If someone commits a serious crime, sexual assault, murder, they're going to be punished. They may be in jail for 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, their whole lives. That's what happens when you commit a serious crime. 
But I think the right to vote is inherent to our democracy. Yes, even for terrible people. Because once you start chipping away and you say, well, that guy committed a terrible crime, not going to let him vote, or that person did that, not going to let that person vote, you're running down a slippery slope. So I believe that people who commit crimes, they pay the price. When they get out of jail, I believe they certainly should have the right to vote. But I do believe that even if they are in jail, they're paying their price to society, but that should not take away their inherent American right to participate in our democracy. End quote. And the audience cheered. Next up was Kamala Harris, whose biggest moment we've already covered, but just to summarize a few other issues that came up in her segment, when asked about reparations for descendants of slaves, she said, quote, we should study it and see, end quote. She also announced a 100-day challenge related to gun control. She said, quote, Upon being elected, I will give the United States Congress 100 days to get their act together and have the courage to pass reasonable gun safety laws. If they fail to do it, then I will take executive action. End quote. And last up was Pete Buttigieg. Because he went last, part of what he ended up doing was responding to earlier positions taken that night. And here comes the big headline. He is with Harris and Warren in their call for impeachment. That makes three major candidates now openly in favor of impeaching the president. His exact statement on the issue of impeachment was, quote, I think he's made it pretty clear that he deserves impeachment, but I'm going to leave it to the House and Senate to figure that out, end quote. Next up, Buttigieg responded to what Sanders had just said about felons having the right to vote even while being in prison. Buttigieg said, quote, while incarcerated? No, I don't think so. I do believe that when you are out, when you have served your sentence, then part of being restored to society is that you are part of the political life of this nation again. And one of the things that needs to be restored is your right to vote. As you know, some states and communities do it, and some don't. I think we'd be a better country if everybody did it. And frankly, I think the motivations for preventing that kind of reenfranchisement, in some cases, have to do with one side of the aisle noticing that they politically benefit from that. And that's got some racial layers, too. That's one of many reasons that I believe that reenfranchisement upon release is important. But part of the punishment when you're convicted of a crime and you're incarcerated is that you lose certain rights, you lose your freedom. And I think during that period, it does not make sense to have an exception for the right to vote. End quote. He actually got two sets of applause for that. First, for his immediate straight answer, then after the longer explanation. The event ended at midnight with a bunch of tired students filing out of the auditorium. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? 
In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Early this morning, Monmouth University released the results of its latest poll trying to sort out voter preferences among the 2020 primary candidates. While the poll results can be condensed down to a tweet, Monmouth also released a story explaining those results, carrying the headline, Dem 2020 Diversity Not a Priority. Yikes. So what did the poll find? Well, Biden is still on top at 27%. Sanders is below him at 20%. Now that is down five points since last time, but still up from his January number, and frankly, still a huge number compared to everybody else except Biden, who's not actually running. Anyway, then the big news Buttigieg and Harris are tied at 8%. The news part here is that Buttigieg was below 1% just last month. Then you have Warren at 6, O'Rourke at 4, Booker at 2, and also Hickenlooper at 2%. Now, here's the other thing. Every single candidate I just listed, all of them, including Biden, but not including Buttigieg, lost at least a point or two since last month. The only candidate who went up in the top-line ranking was Buttigieg. Of course, there are also a ton of candidates I didn't list there because they polled at 1% or lower. Plus, 14% of respondents said they were undecided, and 3% said they would support no one in the current field. So, as I continue to say, it's a big field and it's so early that I'm not even sure how to read a poll where the top candidate isn't even running and several other non-candidates got rankings similar to Klobuchar at 1%. Like Terry McAuliffe got just under 1% and Bill de Blasio got 1% matching Klobuchar. But neither of those guys are actually running, much less holding, like, CNN town hall events, right? So in the Monmouth article explaining the poll, they dug into some more details, including plenty of numbers, and check the link in the show notes for more on that. And they focused on the issue of diversity. I want to read some statements in the article from Patrick Murray, who is the director of the independent Monmouth University Polling Institute. Quote, This is the most diverse field of presidential candidates in history, but that doesn't seem to be a major consideration for Democratic voters at this early stage of the campaign. It's probably a large reason why a couple of old white guys are leading the pack right now. If Biden does enter the race this week, he starts off with a fairly stable amount of goodwill from Democrats. We might even expect to see a small bump after his announcement. But the bigger question will be what happens when those voters start taking a closer look at him on the campaign trail. It's a long way to Iowa, and a lot can happen. End quote. Okay, last story for today. We have been expecting Joe Biden to announce his candidacy tomorrow, which is Wednesday. Last week, there was a major story in The Atlantic about all of this and confirmation of part of that story from the Associated Press. All that stuff is in Friday's show, if you're curious. And now, people in the Biden camp have felt a great disturbance in the force and are saying it's actually maybe Thursday or something? Yeah, so Biden Watch 2019 continues. So, Edward Isaac Dover wrote that Atlantic article last week, and then yesterday evening he tweeted, quote, Several sources say the Biden announcement, which had been planned for Wednesday by video, has now been pushed back, end quote. This was followed by much discussion on Twitter about the location of Biden's first rally, which was supposed to be either Charlottesville, Virginia, or the Philadelphia Museum of Art. 
And apparently, both options might be off the table now? So you might be asking, okay, who cares when Biden announces? Why is that news? Well, the two key reasons that I consider this news are, first, Biden is the frontrunner. He should be able to make a strategy and work it just like everybody else has. So it's frankly pretty weird that this issue is still so much in flux at this very late date relative to all the other candidates. And second, Biden is a guy with a busy schedule, even though he's not an announced candidate yet. And that schedule seems to be conflicting with his ability to announce his own campaign. Again, this seems to indicate some kind of problem. I could speculate on what that problem is, but I really have no data to go on. So let's talk about what we do know. Adding more to the mix, yesterday the Philadelphia Inquirer reported that Biden was definitely not headed to Charlottesville, so cross that one off the list. And they also said, quote, Plans for potential public events in Pennsylvania are also uncertain, according to sources familiar with his plans. End quote. So wait, what? I mean, the Philadelphia Museum of Art was explicitly named as the other big option aside from Charlottesville. And now we have the mayor of Philadelphia saying nobody has pulled permits to do an event there or at any other major location in the city. And adding to this, the Inquirer also reported that plans for Biden's fundraiser in Philadelphia on Thursday are supposedly still moving ahead. But, quote, even the fundraising hosts did not yet have final assurance that their event would happen, end quote. And an unnamed former Biden aide told Time, quote, I've never seen anything so half-assed. They're improvising and doing last-minute planning. The guy has been running for president since 1987 and can't figure the basics out, like where to stand on his first day? This should make everyone very nervous, end quote. And another unnamed Biden insider told Time, quote, The guy's best day is the day he announces. Everything after that gets worse. End quote. And once more from the Inquirer, quote, Biden's political considerations have long been marked by vacillation, dating back to some of his earlier runs for president and continuing through his consideration of a 2016 campaign before declining to run. End quote. That's it for another episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins, and on Instagram, at Instablah. That's blah with one H. There's somebody on there with two H's in their Instablah, and that is a very different account. Uh, anyway, Instagram, a great example of something I should have signed up for and gotten my name right away, but I thought, who's going to want to look at pictures on phones? That's never going to be a thing, right? Oh well. All right, I will talk to y'all tomorrow. <laughs>